You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We are in uh, the fifth or sixth week in a series through Matthew chapters 11 through 13. This series is entitled, Are You the One? Are You the One? A series about Jesus, and the title this morning of our sermon is, The One Who Makes Us Family. The One Who Makes Us Family. You know, every single one of us has an idea, uh, a feeling, an experience of family. For some of us, that idea of family, our experience of family is great. And some of us look back at our past, look back, and maybe when we were growing up, I think back to when I was a kid, Christmas time, and on one side of my family, my dad's side, everybody gets together, all my aunts and uncles, cousins, lots of people there, get together for a day and spend a day together. Uh, the other side of my family, my mom's side of the family, I didn't have any cousins over there until I was an adult, um, but so it wasn't many people. My grandparents would come down from up north and stay with us for a week, and we just, we just looked forward to grandma and grandpa coming and spending a week with us. We just loved and enjoyed them so much. But for some of us, our experience of family is just great. Happy memories, been a great joy. Uh, for others of us, though, perhaps our, our experience of family has been well, a little less great. Uh, family life includes words like conflict, petty disagreements. This person's not talking to this person. The experience of family has become you know, sometimes exhausting. Many of us have known a little bit of that, too. For some of us, family is just difficult. Could be lots of reasons. Marriages struggle or fall apart. Family life gets complicated. Children grow up, move far away, and that's hard, the separation, particularly at the holidays. Some of us, maybe, feel like our family life is just, it's just never quite become what we'd hoped it would be, for whatever reason. It just hasn't developed like we'd hoped it would be, and, and we feel a certain disappointment. For some of us, the joys of family at Christmas are great, but they're, they feel like they're part of an irretrievable past. They're so far behind, we could never go back to those good days. Last week, I spoke up at Dreyer Funeral Home in Holly. They had a kind of a memorial and celebration service for families of people who lost somebody this year, who are, who are coming to the holidays without a loved one, maybe for the first time. And those family joys, those happier times feel like oh, we can't, those are part of a past we just can't get back. We all have some experience of family, and, and our experience of family impacts us in subtle but profound ways. Our ideas, our beliefs, our behaviors, our values, our, our outlook on life is very often shaped in remarkable ways by the family that we've come from. 
Very often the things we hold dear or believe or think about life, uh, we've either inherited from our family or, or sometimes we've, we've adopted as a reaction to our family and things that we didn't like or appreciate about it. What we've not often carefully considered is, is what our family life and how our family relationships relate to our Christian life and our relationship with God. In this passage that we're going to look at this morning here in Matthew 12, Jesus is going to take a simple comment from someone in the crowd, and he's going to use it. He's going to use it as a springboard, as an opportunity to tell us some important things about family relationships, and even more significantly, about our relationship with God. So let's look together, Springview, at Matthew 12, verse 46. Matthew 12, 46. This is God's word. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray as we begin. Father, I pray that you'd help us. We need your wisdom. We need your grace to to see your word and understand your word and embrace it and believe it and obey it. So, So right now I pray that your spirit would speak to us, give us clarity and insight and understanding, and use this time to to both magnify Jesus, uh, grow our love and delight and appreciation and confidence in him, and bring for yourself great glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus had a family. Jesus had a family. We tend to think about Jesus wandering around Israel for three years, trailed by 12 disciples in great crowds, performing ministry feats, operating in that kind of environment, because that's really what we know about. That's how we tend to think about Jesus. But for the first 30 years of his life, which are largely invisible to us historically, for the first 30 years of his life, he lived in close proximity to a family, his family. He had a father and a mother. He had at least four brothers and sisters, too. If you look to the end of the next chapter, chapter 13, look at verse 55. Matthew 13, 55, the people in his hometown say this, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Jesus had at least four brothers. He had parents. He had sisters. He had a cousin or a second cousin named John who would become famous too. Jesus had a family. And we can safely assume that as they grew up, Jesus and his family lived in a home together. It didn't look like your home or mine, I'm sure, but they lived together in a home. They probably ate meals together. They probably worked together. Everybody worked, scraping out a living in that day and age. 
They went to synagogue most weeks for religious instruction and community engagement. They observed holidays together. Luke tells us that every year, Jesus' family made the journey up to Jerusalem at the time of Passover in the spring. Every year they went to Passover. That was what the law commanded. They went. In fact, when Jesus was 12, you remember the story, Luke tells it, they left him there. They took off. They assumed he was in the group, and he, in fact, wasn't. He was back at the temple talking to the rabbis and religious leaders there, listening to their teaching, asking questions, amazing them with his wisdom and insight as a 12-year-old boy. When his parents finally came back and found him several days later, and they said, basically, what are you doing? Why are you here? Why aren't you with us? It says he went back home with them, and he was submissive to them. It's very likely that as Jesus reached adulthood, he took up his father's trade and worked himself as a carpenter. Jesus didn't appear on this earth as some sort of ethereal spirit descending out of the sky, appearing to people suspended in the air. He was born as a baby. Miraculously, conceived of the Holy Spirit was Mary, his mother, but born as a human baby nonetheless. He grew up in a family. He had parents and siblings. He grew up in what seemed to everybody around him to be a very normal, ordinary, nothing special going on here kind of family. That's why when his ministry exploded and he started to get famous and perform miracles and teach and draw all sorts of attention, people started to know who he was. He came back to Nazareth in those verses we just read at the end of chapter 13, and the people said, in, in effect, we've known this guy forever. How could there be anything that special about him? We know his parents, we know his brothers, we know his sisters. Who is this guy? I mean, what they say specifically is, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Jesus grew up in a community, in a family, in a home that didn't seem unusual or special to anybody else around them. Jesus grew up in a family. But, but what does Jesus think about these things? What is Jesus? How does he value family? And how should that impact our families and, and the way that we follow Jesus in them? I want to see three things this morning about family and following Jesus in the passage here. Here's the first one. Family is precious. Family is precious. As Jesus is teaching, his family, says his mother and his brothers, come to talk to him. They want to see him. It says, in fact, they're waiting outside requesting an audience. And maybe they're waiting outside as some kind of formality. Maybe that's just how it worked in those days. They've come to request an audience with this growingly important person. Probably Jesus is just surrounded by a crowd. He's in a house. The houses weren't that big. They probably just literally can't get close enough. And so they send someone in, tell Jesus, tell the teacher that his family's here. We don't know how often Jesus sees them at this point in time. We don't know how much time he spends with him, whether he checks in. We know he's not texting them or giving them calls. And Matthew doesn't tell us what they thought of Jesus. But the other gospel writers do. They give us some hints. Mark in chapter 3 
and Jesus performing miracles and doing amazing things and drawing a crowd, Mark 3.21 says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. In other words, he must be crazy. This is just Jesus. And he's drawing crowds and teaching in front of groups and performing miracles and something's crazy here. And they go to get him. We better bring him home. John tells us even more directly when he starts to teach and say hard things and perform significant miracles, it says in John 7 that his, his, his family, his brothers say, you should go to Jerusalem and do this. I mean, that's the headquarters. That's where the temple is. That's where the capital is. You should go to Jerusalem and do this, and, and then we'll find out. We'll see what they make of you. Because, it says John 7, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. His own family skeptical you have to prove yourself Jesus it's just you after all his blood family the people that knew him best had a hard time accepting who he really was now, now that'll change later grace, grace was that, that'll change later after his death and after his resurrection one of his brothers, James, will become the pastor of the kind of mother church, if you will, in Jerusalem. He'll lead the important council there in Acts 15. He'll write a New Testament letter, the letter to the, the epistle of James uh, later in the New Testament. Another brother, Jude, is almost certainly the writer of the epistle called Jude near the end of the New Testament. That will largely change in his own family over time. But initially, like many other people, Jesus' own family didn't accept him, didn't embrace him, were skeptical about the ministry that he had. But I don't think here in Matthew 12, Jesus is, is knowing that and, and rejecting them. Or rejecting the idea of family in general. Jesus is gracious and patient, not just with sinners, but with family too. Uh, you remember in John 19, as Jesus hangs on the cross, he turns to his mother and the apostle John who were there below him and basically says to, to John, you, you need to take her in. She, she's going to go with you. You care for her. You care for my mother, he says. We know that Jesus in his teaching, in Matthew 15, for instance, he upholds the validity of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Jesus is not anti-family. Family is precious. And it's not just Jesus throughout the New Testament. There's a strong sense of the importance of family relationships and family obligations. There's instructions about marriage, how husbands and wives are to relate to each other, you know, pictured by Christ and the church. There's instructions for children, how to relate to their parents, parents how to relate to their kids. How in the church, older um, men and how to treat older men and older women, how to treat younger men and younger women, uh, instructions on all of these kind of relationships. One of the strongest indicators is in 1 Timothy 5, where Paul says, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he is denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. Paul says, look, if you've got someone who, who says, I, I'm not going to take care of my family, Paul says, you, you can basically treat them as not a believer. Because... Family relationships and obligations are that significant. Je Jesus is not, God is not, Paul is not, New Testament is not anti-family. Family is precious. God created it. It's a good gift. Family is precious, but family is not ultimate. Family is precious, but is not ultimate. 
you know, someone were to come up here right now, one of the ushers, you know, comes from the back, Charlie or Ken or someone comes up and walks to the front here and says, Ben, your, your mom and your brother's in the hallway. I'm going to either say, well, send them in or tell them I'll be out in a minute. Glad to see them. Glad that they're here. But that's not what Jesus does. Someone works their way, pushes their way to the front of the crowd, says your mother and your brothers are outside, and Jesus doesn't say that, not because he doesn't care about them. And, and not because he's petty. Like, I know they don't believe in me, so I'm not going out there. They can wait like the rest of them. Jesus is never like that. He wants to communicate something here about family that is really important. Probably to his own family. Certainly to the crowd. Certainly to his disciples. And, and I think also now to us as we read this so many years later. They say, your family's out there. And Jesus says, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He's not confused or disoriented. He doesn't have amnesia. He knows very well that by every normal calculation, Mary is his mother and his brothers are James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and whoever else he may have. But Jesus is looking to reframe the normal calculation of what family is. He wants them to see it and understand it in a new way. See, the ancient world placed enormous priority on family. Most cultures have historically. But family, blood, was huge. Uh, Lee Eklov in his book, Feels Like Home, describes this. This is how he says people thought about these things in Jesus' day. The first principle, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. Now, it's often the opposite today. We're so strongly individualistic. The individual, me, takes priority. But in the, old, in the ancient world, none of the group had priority over the individual. What's best for the group is more important than what's best for the individual. Group takes priority over individual. The second principle, in the New Testament world, a person's most important group was his blood family. The most important group was the people you were related to by blood. That's your first obligation. That's your main group. That's where your responsibilities and priorities lie. The third principle, in the New Testament world, the closest family bond was not the bond of marriage. It was the bond between siblings. So, so the closest group, right, in the ancient world, group over individual, family is the closest group. In the family, siblings is the big bond. That's the most important one. Family, especially siblings, are at the top of the priority list. There are expectations, responsibilities that everyone would share. So when Jesus' family shows up to see him, the normal expectation would be they get priority. Priority over his disciples. Priority over the crowd. Family first. But Jesus seems to love to turn these kind of things upside down. He loves to turn things on their head. Instead of inviting them in, he poses a question. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Jesus is, Jesus is bringing in a different calculus when it comes to talking about family. He doesn't say that family doesn't exist. 
He doesn't say that doesn't apply anymore. He's not saying that family doesn't matter. He doesn't relieve his followers of their family obligations. Instead, he's going to give them a new vision for what family is. A new vision, a new perspective on family. Blood family is precious, but it's not ultimate. Jesus is bringing people into a new family. Jesus is bringing people into a new family. Look at verse 49. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. They come in and say, Jesus, your family is outside. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, This is my family. This is my family. That's startling. It feels a little bit like a repudiation of his family. And that feels significant and not quite right. It feels like a repudiation of his family. I think I've told you before about my boss, Ted, when I worked at the synagogue in Kentucky. He had an adult son, Teddy Jr., whose life was a big mess. Lots of disappointments, lots of horrible decisions, caused his parents much frustration, much heartache for a very long time. And Ted's attitude, in fact, his exact words were, that's not my son. That's not my son. There's pain there. That's the words of a pained father and words that would be profoundly painful for an estranged son. Such a repudiation is tragic. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not repudiating his family. He's, he's relativizing it. He's not repudiating it. He's relativizing it. As precious as blood family can be, it's not ultimate. There is another family. It's a real family too. And you and I can be part of it. How? Jesus says in verse 50, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The one who does the will of my Father in heaven, that's my family. See, in the ancient world, there were three main markers that established a person's identity. Three main markers. First of all, your gender. Whether you were a man or a woman, it steered you on a certain course. Today, we don't see those things quite that way. There's lots of movement between. We don't have such distinct male roles and female roles, but in that day, it was a, you're, if you're male, your track in your life goes this direction. If it's female, it's this way. A person's options in their life were very constrained by their gender. The second main identity marker was geography, where you're from. Think about how often in the Bible someone is described as some, some, someone from some place. Jesus of Nazareth, right? Partly because people didn't have last names, and lots of people shared the same name, and one of the ways you'd be delineated was by where you were from. That was an important part of what your identity is. The third main marker is paternity, who your father is. So whether you're a man or a woman, where you're from, who's your dad? And so often, again, frequently in the Bible, over and over again, a person who is the son of, so-and-so, the son of, so-and-so, the son of, always. Fascinating example. Um, King Saul 
You remember Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Goliath comes and is taunting Israel and finally young David goes out. David's an unknown. He goes out, tries to put on Saul's armor, doesn't fit. He, I don't need that. He goes, gets his stones, a slingshot. It kind of tells the story. But, but as uh, later in the chapter, it, it talks about what Saul is doing and saying while David is headed out to go fight Goliath. And it says toward the end of 1 Samuel 17, this is what it says. As as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. So so there's David, back from killing Goliath, carrying Saul's head. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. What's the big question about this guy? He doesn't say, Where'd you learn to do that with a slingshot? How did you get so brave? He says, Whose son are you? Who's your dad? I'm trying to figure out who you are. What family you're part of is defined by who your father is. Which makes what Jesus is saying here so remarkable. Think back to chapter 6 in Matthew. Jesus' disciples want him to teach them to pray. And he says, okay, when you pray, start like this. Our Father. We just sang about it. Our Father. Our Father, Jesus says. Mine and yours. Our Father. Together. That wasn't normal language. People in the Old Testament don't pray to God and say, Father. Don't talk that way. But Jesus tells his disciples, when you pray, you say, Father, our Father. Jesus is creating a new family. He's creating a new family. And here's what the members of this family share in common. Not gender. They're both male and female in this family. Not geography. That's not what they share. They come from every place, every location, every race, every language, every ethnicity. It's not that they share the same gender. It's not that they share the same geography. What they share in common is they all have the same father. They have a shared paternity in Jesus' family. God is their father. And this family is forever. This family is forever. Our earthly families are precious, but temporary. Even marriage, the relationship we feel is is the closest. Jesus says, well, see, he tells the Pharisees, you don't understand, because because in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be marriage or giving in marriage. And we look at that and say, how is that even possible? I can't even imagine not, but no, there won't be marriage. Our blood family, I'm sure I will still know Kelly. I'll know that, I, I think I'll know that she's my wife. I'll know that my parents are John and Debbie. I'll know that my siblings are Drew, Sarah, and Michael. I'll know that my kids are, I can't remember all those names, but there's, uh, <laughs> I think we'll know that. But those won't be the relationships. I don't, I don't think there will be a Glupker family ranch or compound on in the new heavens and the new earth where we all cling to each other and stay close and shut everybody else out new relationships, new family. It's not a loss. It's better. It's better. Jesus is creating a new family. He's not repudiating our blood families. He's relativizing them. They matter, but not that much. 
Not as much as you think. They're not everything. And sometimes we make it everything. His family is the one that will last forever. And the way we enter his family is for him to become our father by having Jesus as our brother. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says, but by me. In verse 50, he says, his family is those who do the will of my Father in heaven. But that's not how we become his family. We don't do his will, meet his expectations, perform his demands so that he'll have us. That's not how it works. We can't work our way into his favor. We don't perform so that he'll adopt us. That's the attitude of the Pharisees that Jesus has been fighting against all of these chapters. God's salvation, adoption into his family, is always a gracious gift. This week, Josh and Jenny Herwire brought home little baby Kinsley. Wonderful news. It's not final, final, but it's awful close. They brought her home. Being adopted into the Herwire family, I am sure, is a great gift for baby Kinsley. What a grace that will be to be brought into the Herwire family. How did she do it, you may ask? How did she convince them? What did she show them that said, you should take me? Nothing, right? See, see they, they had picked her before she was born. Before she was born. Whatever gender you are, whatever race you are, whatever health conditions you may have, they said, we want you. It's just grace. It's just kindness, which is how we enter God's family. His grace and kindness. Whatever gender, whatever race, whatever problems, whatever health conditions, whatever struggles, whatever past, a gracious father says, I'll have you. I'll have you. Whoever does the will of my father. I'll have you, whoever you are, whatever your story, whatever baggage you bring, I'll have you in my family. See, doing the will of the Father, it's not the means by which we get into his family. It's just the marker that we have been brought into his family because his children want to please him. God's children want to please their father. Doing the will of the Father is not the way we get in. It's the marker that we have. It's the marker that he's adopted us and brought us into his family. And we say, we love you and we want to please you. Well, let me think for a minute as we finish this morning about a few implications of this. Being part of God's family, having him as our father, has a few implications I want to think about with you for a minute. Here's the first. Our blood family, our, our earthly family, cannot be our highest priority. Family is precious. It is a gift. God gives us obligations toward those people who are in our earthly family. But it cannot be our highest priority. Jesus says some seemingly outlandish things. Things like, unless you hate your father and mother and sister and brother, you can't be my disciple. Now that's a a typical Semitic hyperbole there, an overstatement, but the point Jesus is making is, look, compared to your allegiance to me, to your heavenly father, your love and affection for your earthly family should look like hatred in comparison. Because Jesus, God, is our number one commitment and our number one priority. Our earthly family cannot be our highest priority. Second, 
even if your earthly family is disappointing, and everyone is to some extent, your heavenly family never will be. Listen, your family future in God's family is unbelievably bright. Unbelievably bright. That family will be together forever in a restored heavens and earth, in a new Eden, if you will. Your heavenly family will never be. This is what Jesus says in Luke 18. Uh, the, uh, the rich young ruler has come to Jesus earlier and said, hey, I, I'll, I'll do anything. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you've got to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you could come follow me. And the guy says, I don't want to give up everything I have. And he goes away sad. And the disciples are scratching their heads going, well, wait a minute. And Jesus says, it's really hard almost impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples go, whoa, what? And Peter says, says um, Jesus, we've left our homes and followed you. We left our families, our homes, our livelihoods. One of the other gospels said, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. In other words, where does that leave us? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying, look, no matter what you've had to leave for me, you won't be disappointed in the end. You will receive many times more. Now, that doesn't mean the days between now and then might not be difficult. But in the end, much more. Even if your earthly family has been disappointing, your heavenly family never will be. Here's the third. We could spend a very long time on this, but God's eternal family has an expression here and now. See, God's family is not all future. It's not a, well, someday. There is a glorious someday coming, but there's also a right now. God's family is present right here and right now in his church. You know, we saw earlier in the ancient world, group over individual, blood family, closest group, sibling, closest family relationship. So it's striking that in the New Testament, the early church, the believers continually referred to each other as brother and sister. People didn't do that outside the church. You didn't walk past someone at McDonald's and have them say, what's up, brother? They didn't say that. That was reserved for family. But in the church, that's the way they talked. Because we're part of the same family. We are, not just like, we are brothers and sisters because we have the same father. That word used in the New Testament, Philadelphia, it means brotherly love. Of course, we've got a city in the United States named for brotherly love that doesn't often seem to have lots of brotherly love, but... That word Philadelphia was never really used in ancient literature for people that weren't actually brothers, except in the church. Show brotherly love. Which means that the church, in a very real way, is our first family. If, if, you, um, if you grew up in a context like I did, uh, and, and many of you did, I believe, and, and hopefully we, we have some of this here, that there's a sense that church is not just a bunch of people getting together for the performance of religious exercise, but is actually a family. It's actually a family where people care about each other 
and look after each other and look after each other's kids and look after each other's needs. The church is our first family because it's the family that will last forever. It ought to profoundly affect the way we treat each other, profoundly affect the way we understand our relationships with each other. Well, this could be a whole series of sermons in and of itself. God's eternal family has an expression here and now. Family is precious. It's not ultimate. In Jesus, there is a new family that will last forever. Anybody can get in on that. Anybody can get in on that family through faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Anybody can. So this Christmas, as you gather with your family, how should you think and how should you feel? Well, you should enjoy them, but don't need them. Don't put the weight of satisfying all your family dreams and hopes and desires on your fellow family members. Enjoy them. Serve them. Look to Jesus together with them, but don't need them or use them. They're not there to fulfill the fantasies we have of the perfect family and the perfect Christmas, and that's not what they're there for. Oh, the best thing we can do with our families is look together toward God's eternal family that will last forever, that will never disappoint, from which we cannot be separated. Father, I, I pray this morning, family is, for most of us, sources of profound joy and all too often profound frustration and heartache. And Lord, I, I don't want to say to these people this morning that those joys and those frustrations are not real or that they don't matter. But what I do want to say and what I do want to, in my own heart, Father, feel is that the greatest privilege is to be part of your family. And so this morning, if there's anybody here who doesn't know themselves to be part of your family because they've never turned to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, that this morning you'd open their eyes and soften their hearts and give them eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to believe and hearts to embrace the truth of, of a Savior who's died in their place so that he might make many brothers and many sisters and bring them to the Father. I pray this morning, right now, they'd turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and that you'd bring them joyfully, eagerly, and eternally into your family. And Father, for the rest of us, Lord, we, we need help. We need help to, to love our family rather than need them to enjoy them rather than use them, that, that our great aim would not be to paint or create this perfect picture or perfect replica of, of the perfect family, but rather to see all the joys that we have as someday becoming a reality in your eternal family. Uh, so I pray for every person here. I pray that you'd give them especially in this holiday season, I pray that you give them a great Christmas season with their family through the joys, through the frustrations, through the surprises and, and the disappointments. I, I just pray that you would give us a great sense that you are a loving Father to whom we may always come by the grace of Jesus Christ and that we would find the love we need, the community we need, the hope that we need in you 
and might share that with our families all season long. I pray this in Jesus' name. I want to thank you for coming this morning. It's been good to be here with you. Let me encourage you to take some time to uh, encourage each other and enjoy each other's company. And uh, ladies, uh, in a couple minutes after our uh, kids are picked up, there'll be a very exciting, unique opportunity meeting in the library. However, if you're picking up children, they need to come up here for a few minutes to practice for their song next Sunday. So, mothers... um, may go. Everyone else you may go to, but uh, you've got a lot to do. That's what I'm saying. So God bless you. Have a great week.